Let's pray. Uh, Jason, do you have that going, the recording? Okay, good. All right, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this evening. Thank you for these men who you've called and who you have been at work in already. And we pray that you would continue that work in each of us, that you would shape us, form us into the men that you've called us to be in Christ. Uh, So, Father, as we think about discipleship tonight, help us to think uh, both broad and deep, to think about the world, to think about ourselves, our families, our church, our community, and wherever you've put us uh, so that we might grow and not grow complacent, but grow uh, in sanctification and likeness to our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start tonight with a few quotes, two really short ones and then one longer one, just to set the table to talk about, in a broad way, tonight, discipleship. We're going to do two sessions tonight. I'm going to just break it up. We're going to go for a while, and then we'll take a break for some refreshments and uh, stretch our legs, and then we'll come back and do a bit more. Uh, Like most topics I get into, when I get into them, find out um, there's way more stuff. And that one thing to keep in mind with all of this that we want to do with these discipleship lectures is just to um, give a bit of an overview on the various subjects. And over a period of time, we actually our plan is to do this six times a year and do it for four years and to cover a pretty wide range of subjects. But again, if you want to go deeper, we're going to be providing recommendations of books or audio, other resources that if you say, well, that really interests me. I want to go deeper. I want to, to get more. And obviously, if you spend hours uh, reading a book on the subject uh, or listening to other talks, then you're going to get a lot more than what we can do in the short period of time that we have. Um, Dallas Willard uh, has written several good books. I've, I've brought a, uh, one here to show you. Uh, but his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he said, Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. I like the way that stated. It makes it makes you think a bit. What would Jesus be? Uh, who would who would I be if if that happened? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book The Cost of Discipleship, said, "When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die." And we're going to go into that in more depth in this first talk. Now, I want to read a good bit longer quote from Bonhoeffer in the same book, Cost of Discipleship, about grace, cheap grace, and uh, costly grace in the light of discipleship. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares, uh, uh, like junk, uh, just inexpensive stuff, the dollar store, if you will. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose is that the account has been paid in advance 
And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite, what would grace be if it were not cheap? And so he answers that question. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of a man, for the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy uh, that which the merchant will, for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is, it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. I want us to begin by looking at two key passages. So if you want to turn, you can, or if you just want to listen, Luke, Luke 14 25 through 35, and then the parallel passage to that from Matthew 10, 34 through 39. So Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great multitudes went with him, that is with Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, He cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or what else, or, or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions for peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the parallel passage from Matthew 10, 34 through 39, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now these are some hard sayings, hard things that Jesus taught. And I don't know about you, when I hear them, um, uh, Jesus bothers me sometimes. <laughs> He's such an extremist. Uh, there's, no, there's no softening of what he is calling us to and what he's demanding. Can you imagine a politician standing at a podium and, and addressing a crowd and saying something like, if you're going to vote for me, uh, you're voting to lose your homes and families and you're asking for higher taxes and lower wages. Uh, you're deciding in favor of losing all that you love best. So come on, who's on my side? You know, that's crazy. Nobody could get elected doing that. Does this guy really think he is, he's going to win? Uh, why on earth would anyone try to promote themselves that way? But isn't that what Jesus is doing in Luke 14? So you want to be my disciple, do you? Well, in that case, you'll have to learn to hate your family, give up your possessions, and get ready for a cruel death. This is hardly the way to build a movement. But suppose, suppose instead of a politician, we think of a leader of a great expedition forging his way through a high and dangerous mountain pass to bring medical aid to villagers cut off from the rest of the world. And he says, if you want to come any further, you'll have to leave your packs behind. And from here on, the path is too steep to carry all that stuff. You probably won't find it again, and you'd better send your last postcards home. This is a dangerous route, and it's likely that several of us will not make it back. We can understand that. We might not like the sound of it, but we can see why it would make sense. And we can see, therefore, that Jesus is much more like the second illustration than he is the first. Again, Dallas Willard, in his book, The Great Omission, Reclaiming Jesus' Essential Teaching on Discipleship, uh, made this point. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today, with all of its heart heartbreaking needs, is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians, will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. 
The call to follow Christ is total. Every square inch, every aspect of our lives, he's calling us to deny ourselves and to now follow him, to lay down our life, to consider ourselves dead, and to follow him. Now, this is exactly what each and every one of us has been called to, and that call is from Jesus Christ himself. Now, when we observe total dedication in someone or some group, we, we tend to stop and pay attention, to stop and look. We want to know why. We want to know what. We might think them odd or fear them, or we might admire them, but they do get our attention. They are often uh, attracted, we are often attracted uh, by the dedication of others, though again, we might also fear it. You ever see something where you admire, let's say, an athlete that's accomplished incredible things, and you find out what they had to do to accomplish that? And I can admire it and think, yeah, but I would never do that. I, I would never make that kind of commitment that, uh, to do what it took to do what he did. So we sometimes admire it from a distance. Um, thus, dedication, though, has a tendency to perpetuate itself. I'm not going to follow an uncertain leader into battle. I'm not going to... Ever accomplish, a leader is never going to accomplish much if he doesn't demand much because that leader sets the tone and the pace of the movement. So what did Jesus do? Was Jesus just calling for us to do this or did he do it? So, of course, we know the answer to that. This being the case, a movement can make big demands upon its followers knowing that some kind of a response will come. If you say... You know, I want you to, here's the mission, here's what we want to accomplish, here's what we want to do, and it's going to cost you a great deal. And you may say, never mind, I'm not going to sign up. That's exactly what we see happening in Luke. Crowds have come out to see Jesus, they're curious, they're interested, and Jesus is basically saying, wait a minute. You see, if we were in modern uh, evangelicalism, man, he would have been signing everybody up left and right. All you got to do is ask me into your heart. Who wants to go to heaven? Then let's just bow our heads and ask me into your heart. And then you got, you're going to heaven. That was easy. That's not what he does, of course. If the members of an organization are undisciplined, half-hearted, and largely inactive, then it's not surprising if others who join it soon conform to that general pattern. And I have to say, the church faces this struggle all the time. You know, when you're a small group and you're just starting and you have a lot of vision and and commitment, because it takes a lot of commitment when you start a church because you don't have buildings and budgets and air conditioning sometimes or all kinds of other inconveniences. So it's easy to, you know, it takes that dedicated small group. But what happens is you start to grow and then it's easy, before you know it, to start lowering the standards, to stop, start cutting corners, to stop demanding so much. Because, hey, if we demand a lot, guess they might not join. They might not stick around. We need more people, right? 
And so it's easy for any organization to do this and to lose sight of their original commitment. This is one of the problems of church or what we call institutional drift. It can also be a personal problem. That's why Galatians warns, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't lose heart, if we don't lose our commitment. So if the organization makes relatively few demands upon its members, and if they they're quite uh, obviously feel under no obligation to give very much to it, then those who join could be forgiven for assuming that this is the norm and that's what membership entails. And so, yeah, we all stand up and take vows about our commitment to what we do at home with our families and coming to worship and tithing and evangelism and personal godliness. But, you know, they don't really mean that. Nobody's going to really push that, enforce that. And so eventually, little by little, other people look around and say, hey, apparently you can, you don't have to do any of that and you can still be a member in good standing. That is one of the threats and dangers to any given, any particular church. It's also, as we're going to see, as we talk about this tomorrow, I'm assuming Roy and, and Nathan are going to cover this in regard to both church and family. It can happen in your family. It can happen in the church. It can happen with Christendom generally. And so um, um, in Acts 5.13, as those outside the church observed what was going on in the church, Luke recorded this observation. He says, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So as they're looking at what's going on in the very early church, there was both respect and esteem. They They held them up, they admired what they saw, and yet they also didn't dare become part of it. It was too scary, it was too threatening. So why do you think this minority of Christians had such an impact on the world in the first few centuries? How do we account for that? When the members from the leaders down are characterized by their single-minded devotion to the cause, giving until it hurts, even giving their lives, putting their time, their money, and thought, and if necessary, their lives, their life itself at its disposal, then those who considered following Jesus will assume that this is what is expected of them. They'll come uh, conditioned to also be dedicated then those who consider following Jesus will assume that this is what will be expected of them. Which is, just occurs to me, what's more powerful? Would you rather have 12 totally dedicated people or 24 moderately dedicated people? Which is going to be the most effective for change and influence? Right. So um, so the questions for us uh, today are, are we all in? Both feet, all the way in. Not in the kiddie pool, in the deep end. Is it obvious that we're all in by how we relate to others, to ourselves, and to our things? 
because that's what Luke 14 is talking about. All in disciples, actually, according to Jesus, are the only real disciples. Notice in Luke 14, he says, if you don't do this, if you don't deny yourself, if you don't hate your family, and we'll talk more about what that means, and you don't give up all your possessions, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. There's no uh, auditing the, the class. I don't want to take it for credit. I don't want to have to take any test. I don't want to pay any tuition. I just want to come sit in and listen and watch from the back seats. Jesus said, no, don't need that. And we'll see in another place in the New Testament, it says many turned and followed him no more. So here's a crowd following Jesus. You'd think he's ready to sign them up. He says, wait a minute, the birds have nests, the foxes have holes, the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. You sure you want to do this? So his words to the crowd, again, were that if you don't do these things, you cannot be my disciple. There's no mystery about the indisputable fact that some minorities exert influence out of all proportion to their numbers. That's certainly true in our culture. The only explanation is dedication and commitment. But dedication must be met with... uh, with dedication. In other words, if we're going to stand against those small groups that are exercising inordinate influence in our culture, are there? can you think of any? There's a pretty good list of them, right? And if we look at their percentage of the numbers of people that fit in those various categories, they're all minorities. Sometimes really small numbers. And so, um, do you want to know why less than 2% of our population is driving their agenda while Christians sit on the sidelines? It's because they're dedicated and we're sitting on the sidelines. We're comfortable. It's easy. We don't really break a sweat. So let's begin... And go back to Luke 14. I want us to do this in this first session and look at our calling to Christ and from the world. To Christ and from the world. That's our calling. It's not just to Christ. He called us out of the world to leave something and he called us to something. And those two need to be together. Um, So when Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to first... Turn from our sins. What is sin? You know the definition from the catechism, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, we're not doing what he says to do. We're not following him. We're not, uh, we're either not doing what he says to do or we're doing what he says not to do. And that's sin. And so the beginning of following Jesus is to say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to be God. I'm not going to determine good and evil for myself. I'm going to let him I'm going to bow to him, and he is going to be the boss of me. That's what becoming a Christian is. True followers of Christ actually follow Christ. Lord, what would you have me to do? What kind of friend do you want me to be? What kind of husband do you want me to be? What kind of man do you want me to be? What kind of father do you want me to be? 
I'm listening. I'm ready to follow. So this repentance involves changing the way we think about other people, about ourselves, and about the world, and about God. It involves changing the way we think. It means having our behavior then reflect that new thinking. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So this wasn't a call to a major adjust, to a minor adjustment, but rather to a radical change in every way. And this call to repentance not only changed our destination, heaven or hell, but also our route. We had to forsake ourselves. We had to forsake our old relationships with others. And we had to forsake even our possessions. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Old, all things have become new. We have a new view of everything. We're looking at things totally differently. The demands of Christian discipleship are total, and they stand in complete opposition to the world because friendship with the world is what? Enmity, hostility toward God. This is not not both. It's one or the other. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You cannot have two masters. You will love one and hate the other. And so, they stand in complete opposition. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you are against me. Dallas Willard observed the idea of having faith in Jesus has come to be totally isolated from being his apprentice and learning how to do what he said. Oh, I have Jesus as my Savior. That's all I, I got my ticket punched. Once saved, always saved, right? I'm going to heaven. I ask him into my heart. I was baptized. I'm in. I can coast now. Oh, I, I know I shouldn't do that. I, I should do better than that. But main main thing is getting to heaven, right? But what if you're on the wrong road? You see, it matters which direction you're going. What is the evidence that you're actually going to heaven? Marinelle and I just drove to Tampa and back. And I'm thankful that every few miles, there's a reminder that I'm still on I-10. Have you ever made one of those wrong turns and you've been driving for a good while and you realize I shouldn't have turned 40 miles back there? <laughs> I gotta do some backtracking. So God gives us signs to tell us whether we're on the right road or not. How do I know if I'm following Jesus? So, um, even before we come to faith in Christ, uh, He calls us to count the true cost of discipleship, which demands first and foremost that we love Him supremely, more than anything else. So let's take up these demands of discipleship one at a time. Hating your family. Since Christianity has often quite rightly been associated with what, what are called family values, it's kind of shocking to read in Scripture that Jesus says you need to hate your parents and your wife and children and siblings. But when the demand goes one step further and requires that we must also hate our own lives, uh, and be prepared for a shameful death, then we start to see what's going on. Jesus isn't 
denying the importance of family. But when, but when there is an urgent task to be done, as there now is, then everything else, including our own life, has to be put at risk for the sake of the kingdom. So wherever we are, whatever line of work we're called to, whatever our condition in life, whatever stage of life we're in, whether we're students or uh, whether we're married or single, whatever we are, wherever we are at that time, we are called to take all of that. Remember, when God calls Abraham, he doesn't just call Abraham the man. He calls Abraham and his family and his land and his wife and children and servants and property, and he says, all of that is mine. So it's not just some Jesus in my heart. It's Jesus is the, the king and the Lord over me, and wherever I am and whatever I'm doing is under that lordship. Historically, the gospel has frequently cut people off from their families. Still true in many places of the world. Baptism Baptism was often the event that caused a convert to Christ to be considered dead to his family. Cut off. The closest possible relationships then are to be brought under the lordship of Christ. Can you think of a love any greater than that between a mother and a child? What can be so important as to separate us from this? What could add... Uh, We could add to this list husband and wife. There have been many divorces because a husband or wife refused to bow to Christ. How can this division in the family be? Well, first generation turns on the lights. First generation of faith turns on the lights, and evil loves the darkness, and immaturity hates maturity. And so to belong to Christ is such a high privilege that no other relationship can replace it or come before it. And we're going to see that this actually has a benefit to those, uh, to our family and to ourselves. But it starts with denial. It starts with death. It starts with Jesus is Lord. So the first commandment says what? Thou shalt have No other gods before me. It's a duty so imperative that no other obligation is more binding. There's a, I believe it's in Deuteronomy 13, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on that, where uh, the law says, if the one who is as your own soul, what we would say your BFF, your best friend forever, entices you to worship another god, you shall not spare him, but you shall stone him. Now, there's more to that context and how the process, due process would work there. The point is that's being made is, I don't care if it's your best friend, if he is leading you away from Christ, to worship a false god, then you're to throw him overboard. Your loyalty is to Christ first, to the true God. Now, Jesus drives the point home. Um, 
And so this duty is so imperative that no other obligation is more binding. He who loves father and mother more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Baptism is a picture of this. Romans 6, 3-4, Or do you not know that as many of us as who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In other words, if we're going to be united to Christ's life, if we're going to have eternal life, we start by being united to his death. We're either united to him or we're not. And if we're united to him, we're united to him at every point. And in Luke 14, 26, Jesus makes the point even more firmly, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are hard words, but I must ask, is your loyalty to Christ greater than your loyalty to your parents or your children? Never was this demand more important than when Jesus was at the height of his popularity. Luke tells us that great multitudes went with him, Luke 14, 25. Some of these multitudes wanted to see more of his miracles or hear more of his teaching, but many of them were just following the crowd. The atmosphere was electric, and people wanted to get in on the excitement. Jesus was there to do something more than make people curious, however. He was calling them to make a commitment. So Jesus turned around and told the crowd three times that unless they met his strict criteria, they could never be his disciples. And I'm reminded of you know, other places where Jesus talked about the way is broad The gate is broad, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, but the gate is narrow, and the way is narrow that leads to life. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, you know, we did this and this in your name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So Jesus had given many generous invitations to come into his kingdom, 
But now he was making sure people knew how much it would cost them to enter. I do this sometimes. Somebody calls and says, we're thinking about, we want to start a church in such and such a place. We've got half a dozen or, you know, a dozen people and we want to start a church. And I start telling them I'm excited and, and they're excited and all that. And then they'll say, well, what do we need to do next? I said, well, you need to invite me or somebody like me to come talk you out of it. Because it's hard. It's real hard. And if you can be talked out of it, then good. You're not ready. So telling people, again, to hate what they love is hardly the way to become more popular, and Jesus knew this demand would have exactly the opposite effect. Rather than increasing the number of his followers, such a confrontational statement is going to cause many of them to walk away. But Jesus wasn't looking for spectators. He was calling for recruits, and he knew that the only disciples who would go the distance with him were the ones who had counted the cost. We've all known people who signed up for this, who fell away for something very temporary, some kind of immediate gratification. What Jesus said about hating our families and even our very own lives does not contradict the rest of what Scripture says. It cannot contradict the fifth commandment, which tells us to honor our fathers and our mothers, a commandment that Jesus himself defended against the abuses of the Pharisees. Nor can it contradict Christ's own command to love as he loved us, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and even to love our enemies. So what does Jesus mean when he tells us to hate our families? According to Scottish theologian Thomas Boston, he means that, quote, no man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. Here is, it's important to understand that the Bible sometimes uses absolute language, the absolute language of hatred to express a comparative degree of affection. A good example comes from the book of Genesis where Jacob is said to have loved Rachel more than Leah, and yet the very next verse of Scripture says Leah was hated. To hate in this sense is to love one more than another, so that if it comes down to a choice, there is no doubt which affection we will choose. And so here, here Jesus takes our dearest affections and he says that he must mean more to us than anything else in the world. He must mean more to us than our own families, however much we love them. There are times, I think, when our love for our families can get in the way of our love for Jesus. For example, it does this when we have an idolatrous attachment to our children and their activities. Jesus isn't telling us to neglect the responsibility we have to care for our families any more than he's telling us to loathe our own own existence. Even when we hate our families in the biblical sense, we still love them. We actually love them more when we put Christ first. Because then he sends us back to our wives, right? And he says, I want you to love her the way I loved you. 
and gave myself for my bride. That's what I want you husbands to do for your wives. The picture of the father loving the son. That's how we love our children. But we don't love our children when we indulge them and we defend them when they shouldn't be defended and when they oppose Christ and they oppose the church and we say, you know what, I'm sticking with my kid, not the church. I remember one startling sermon I read of Spurgeon's. He was preaching, to, as he often was, to a very big crowd, and he said, some of you young men out there who are living riotous and rebellious lives and your mothers are praying for your salvation, when you die and you stand before God and he casts you into hell, your mother is going to stand up and say, Amen. Bearing our cross, you don't belong to yourself. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? I'm thinking of 1 Thessalonians 4 where God says not to, uh, that this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he goes on to say, don't defraud, defraud one another. Don't, you got your girlfriend, her body doesn't belong to you. She, she might be your girlfriend, but she's not your wife. You got your boyfriend, he might be your boyfriend, but he's not your husband. Don't don't commit sexual immorality and take what is not yours to take and act like a bunch of unbelievers, Thessalonians says. But it goes on to tell us at the very end of that section that the way we're going to be able to resist that temptation and honor God as true believers and followers of Jesus, by the way, it says, and if you disobey this, you're disobeying God, not men. And he will hold you to account. But he has given you his Holy Spirit. We're different because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So now you don't belong to yourself. You're a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Christians are those who have taken up their crosses, died to themselves and to the world. So what did cross-bearing mean to the first disciples? Well, even before Jesus was crucified, they would have recognized that the cross was certainly a symbol of rejection, humiliation, and excruciating pain. Crucifixion was the most gruesome form of execution in the Roman world, a death penalty reserved for traitors, criminals, and slaves. It was utterly humiliating and torturous. It was prolonged. It was public. It was meant to say to the world, you are a piece of crap. You are nothing. You are worthless. You are worse than worthless. You have no power whatsoever. And of course, the resurrection said, oh yeah, watch this. That's another story coming soon. To see a man carrying his cross was to see a man going to die the worst of all possible deaths. 
The disciples knew this, but they didn't yet understand that Jesus was going to die this kind of death. He'd been trying to tell them, of course. He had told them that he would suffer many things and that he would be rejected and killed. He had also told them that if they wanted to follow him, they'd have to carry their crosses every day and lay down their life for him. Jesus was walking the way of the cross, and everyone who wanted to follow him would have to walk that way also and suffer with him. Yet cross-bearing is the way we live and die for Jesus because it's the way that he lived and died for us. The very image of cross-bearing reminds us that we have given up any claim to our own lives and are now prepared to face any kind of suffering up to and including martyrdom because cross-bearing is a particular kind of suffering. It's the suffering we endure for the very reason that we are followers of Jesus. It's not because I, you know, have some malady that I'm lugging around. Well, I just this is my cross that I have to bear. No, that's not what's being talked about. The cross here is Christ's cross. Jesus says that unless we bear these kinds of crosses, we cannot be his disciples. So the exclusion he makes is absolute because a cross-bearing disciple is really the only kind there is. Therefore, the first question any would-be disciple needs to ask is, am I willing to die with Jesus and for Jesus just as he was willing to die on the cross for me? Am I all in? Because if I'm not willing to die for Jesus, then I'm not really ready to live for him either. Not in the way that he calls me to live. And so as we follow Christ, our lives are conformed to the pattern of Jesus and his sacrifice, laying down our lives for others, giving them our time, our help, our service, our charity. Jesus has given his life for us, and now we give our lives to him by serving in sacrificial love. 